0: I'm David Flint, and this is Save the Nation, a programme streamed on ADHTV, the exciting new media platform in Australia. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Ian Plymer, probably the best-known geologist in Australia and very well-known across the world. In fact, he's a professor, or has been a professor in at least four universities, including a German one whose name I cannot remember or pronounce. Welcome, Ian. Thank you for having me, David. It's a great pleasure. Ian, we have a a number of ministers in our government, and I notice among them is an assistant minister for the Republic. Does that cause you any surprise? Well, it does cause me concern in that they are structuring the ministry
1: such that they will fight very, very hard to have a republic. Now, um, Matt Thistlethwaite uh, is an interesting chap. He's got a couple of um, assistant ministries. He's from the western part of Sydney. That's where they need the votes. That's where they're losing votes uh, of the trade uh, tradesmen and uh, people who actually get out of bed and work. So they are trying to boost up the case for a republic. Now, we've had that argument 20 years ago. They failed. And since the death of Queen Elizabeth II, uh, it's getting harder and harder for them. So uh, this this is government trying to persuade the Australian people to change the absolute fundamentals of our country. He is, like so many others in the federal government, very, very weak. These are eminently unknown people who have achieved very little in their life, have no life experience, and they are meant to direct the way we think. The answer is no.
0: Well, there's another minister in the government, the present government, Chris Bowen. He is the Minister for Climate Change, which seems extraordinary that you could have a ministry for that, and energy, climate change and energy. What do you think of that?
1: Well, the, the two ministries of, of climate change and energy are counterproductive because climate change measures actually make our energy more expensive and make Australia more competitive, uh, less competitive. Um, but I'm a great supporter of Chris Bowen uh, he is probably the weakest in the um, Labor Cabinet, and I think his actions will hasten the demise of the Labor government. So I'm a great supporter of Bowen. I think he should go hard and fast, and uh, that will bring down the government, bring up costs. People will say, well, wait a minute, we didn't vote to pay for all this for electricity. Let's get rid of him and the government. So I think, he, I think he's a wonderful weak man in an extraordinarily weak government, In my life of, uh, and I've got a seven in front of my age, in my life, I don't think I've seen a weaker government and weaker
0: cabinet. Well, uh, I I read an article of yours recently, a very fascinating article in Spectator, and you talked about something I'd never heard of before, bisphenol A. What was that all about? The article was um, looking
1: at wind and solar power. Now, we have got this concept that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. That's never been shown. I've asked scientists for more than 20 years for half a dozen primary scientific papers that prove that human emissions drive global warming. That's never been done. And if you had to do that, uh, if you could prove it, you'd then have to show that the natural emissions, which are 97% of the total, don't drive global warming. So the whole business of climate change is underpinned by an assumption. Now, on that assumption, we've said, oh, we've got to save the planet. And we've speared the, the countryside with wind turbines and covered all this prime agricultural land with solar panels. Now, we have to question why that's been done. It hasn't been done for reasons of science. It's done because there is a group of people in there now who are making a fortune out of solar and out of wind. Now, these people are destroying the beauty of the countryside. They are slicing and dicing birds and bats. That, of course, is for the environment. That's, of course, to save the planet. And these people, of course, are good greens who are greatly concerned about the environment. But what they don't tell us Is in the making of solar panels and in the making of wind turbines, there's more energy used to make them than they'll ever produce in their workable life. The second thing is that there's more carbon dioxide released in making them than they'll ever produce, uh, than they'll ever save in their working life. And then we look at the components. And the components of these solar panels are silica with a little bit of addition of selenium, tellurium, and lead. Every time it rains, we leach a bit of that out into what was good farming land and we destroy that land. But it's the wind turbines which are even worse. The wind turbine blades are made out of fiberglass with epoxies, uh, balsa wood and other composites. Now, of course, we have to clear fell a Brazilian rainforest to get the balsa wood. That's done for the good of the environment and the epoxy has got a component in it called bisphenol A. Now this is an extraordinary toxic material. It's been banned from use in many, many countries in the world, and every blade releases about two grams a year of bisphenol A. We only need one gram of bisphenol A, and we have sterilized 10 million liters of water. So this is a toxin through the life of a blade that will destroy um, some 500 billion liters of water, half a trillion liters of water. So we have got a toxic component that is in those blades. It's getting spread wide and far. And then, of course, these blades can't be recycled. We've tried to sell them to third world countries. They've said, "Oh no, we don't want these. Um, we don't want these toxins in our place." And so, then the wind companies thought of dumping these, and they got caught illegally dumping. Now they put them in dumps where these blades are cut up. They leach out bisphenol A into the soils and the waterways, and we are permanently poisoning very, very large areas of land. So this great scheme to save the planet for the sake of the environment is actually destroying the environment and polluting the environment with these chemical toxins. And... (laughs) And there is absolutely no excuse for this. And governments are supporting this. And why are governments supporting it? Because their mates, and in Australia, the Superannuation Funds owned by the unions, are big investors in the wind industry. So we are suffering from exactly what the environmental movement tried to stop, and that is broad-scale, seriously bad pollution.
0: How long do these windmills last? How how often do they have to be renewed?
1: It depends upon where they are. Uh, Blades have a life in terms of the manufacturer's guarantee of five years. Most blades will last for 15, maybe 20 years, and then they have to be recycled or thrown out or um, somehow disposed of. Those in a marine environment where you've got pretty aggressive weathering and erosion of these blades last a lot shorter. Now, here is the problem. The solar panels and the turbine blades are made in China. Once we decarbonize this country and get rid of our uh, gas and get rid of our coal generation, then we are at the mercy of China. And if China says, when we are to replace all of our blades, if China says, sorry, you've been bad boys, we don't like your policies in your country, we are not going to give you blades or solar panels, then we've lost the ability in this country to generate electricity. And so we've put this country under huge sovereign risk by going down the path of ruinables. These are not renewables, these are ruinables. We once had a very cheap, reliable power system, which is why we had big smelters come to Australia. Our power is not cheap, is not reliable, and that is apparently because we are suffering a climate emergency. I'm yet to see the data that we're suffering a climate emergency. We certainly have climate change and we've had it for thousands of millions of years and except for the last couple of decades that climate change was apparently due to natural processes. Now apparently it's due to humans. So I argue that the shift to solar and wind has been the
0: biggest policy failure that governments have ever made. So we shouldn't be talking about renewables. We should be talking about ruinables That is a very good uh, piece of advice. Now, uh, the politicians are always talking about footprints, carbon. They call them carbon footprints. I assume they mean CO2 footprints. But there was an interesting piece in The Australian the other day where they told about Adam Band, who's the leader of the Greens, going to the door of the chairman's lounge wearing a mask. But as soon as he got into the chairman's lounge, he took the mask off. As soon as he left the chairman's lounge at uh, Mascot, he he put the mask back on. And they refer to the fact that apparently he usually flies business class, presumably overseas first class, and uh, that if you travel business class or first class, they suggested, certainly business class, that uh, because of the amount of area you take, this is about uh, twice the amount of carbon dioxide for the blue, for the footprint than you would if you travel economy. And as you know, politicians are always travel. They travel at a drop of a hat. Things which could be done by remote means through Zoom and so on require them to go because they need the photo opportunity. They, they also like travelling. Now. Should we have a system in which the footprints of public officials and people on public companies who are anxious about these questions of carbon footprints should all the footprints be published so that we know how much carbon dioxide, Mr. Bant and uh, the Prime Minister in particular, because he has his own jet, how much, how much carbon dioxide they are producing and what their footprint is?
1: Well, hypocrisy is the word you're trying to say. <laughs> uh, this is right across the board. Um, and your Adam Bantz of the world are uh, uh, happy to travel in a machine made from soil which has been re- smelted and refined into aluminium. It's an aluminium magnesium alloy to burn all this fossil fuel to fly here and there. If Adam Bant was serious, he would pedal a bamboo bicycle from his electorate in Melbourne up to Canberra. Uh, That (laughs) might take him five or six days. Uh, He probably would have to eat a bit of meat to get the energy to do it. So these people are hypocrites, and I strongly support the view that we should publish what they use. But then again, I have another view. I'm yet to see evidence that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. We have known for centuries that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere fertilises plants. So if Adam Bant is putting out more plant food into the atmosphere and is quite happy to say, look, I fly because I want plants to grow better, I would support him. I I think carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is wonderful. We've had a decrease in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from about 20% to 0.04%. We are getting to a carbon dioxide crisis and that is it's not that we humans are putting it in the atmosphere. There's not enough of it. And if we doubled or tripled the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere, that would be at the level that horticulturists like for getting a good yield. So Adam Bant should either say I'm trying to make the plants grow or I'm a hypocrite. Nothing in between.
0: <laughs> your, your wonderful latest book, Green Murder, you said something about that in a recent article in The Spectator, at the foot of the article you said, you referred to Green Murder and you said it's been produced and written using only electrons generated by the burning of fossil fuels and one had to have a laugh at that. Why did you write that book?
1: (coughs) I'm totally sick of the Greens. I'm totally sick of people telling me how I should live my life, what happens in my bedroom, what I eat, when I travel, where I travel, how I travel. These people are hypocrites. These people have no scientific knowledge and these people need to be called out. I had a bit of time on my hands when I wrote that book. I was in a clinic in Melbourne. I was in there for a year or so uh, getting treated for cancer. You can either sit around and moan or you can write a book. I wrote a book. And uh, the aim of that book is to give the average person the weapons to be able to fight green stupidity. Because green green stupidity leads to people dying. It leads to slavery. It leads to children working underground in mines in the Congo as slaves and dying of cobalt poisoning or rockfalls. So the aim of the book is is to get a message out there underpinned by science that people can fight, because if we don't fight, if we don't fight every aspect that the left is coming up with, be it attacks on sexuality, be it attacks on religion, be it attacks on history, Western civilization, if we don't fight every inch of the way, then we are going to lose everything that has taken two and a half thousand years uh, to evolve, and we're going to lose it to a socialist nirvana run by people who have got a self-interest but no life experience.
0: Well, it is a magnificent book, and I found it easy to understand. I'm not a scientist. But one of the clinches, I thought, was what you had to say about the number of ice ages that have occurred during the life of this planet and the, the amount of carbon dioxide in the air. And I wonder if you could explain that to, to our viewers. We've well, had six ice ages in the history of the planet.
1: Every one of these started when we had more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. It's clear that if carbon dioxide drives global warming, then we wouldn't have had an ice age. And in fact, the times when the planet had more than 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we had three great ice ages. Two of these three had the planet covered in ice. And of course, there are these great scientific questions. What happens? how do you actually cover a planet in ice and how does that ice disappear? And the simple scientific answer is we don't know. So we have no relationship over time between carbon dioxide and climate. In each of these ice ages we have a glaciation and that's when the ice sheets expand and we have an interglacial interglacial when the ice sheets retreat. Our ice age that we are in now started 34 million years ago and it has cycles, 100,000-year cycles, when about 90,000 a glaciation and 10,000 are interglacial. We are currently in an interglacial. The glaciation finished 14,000 or so years ago. We reached a peak of our interglacial 7,000 to 4,000 years ago. And we've been cooling down ever since as we're coming back into another orbitally driven glaciation. So um, the past tells us how the present is operating and if you want to argue that traces of a trace gas drive a major planetary system, you can only do this when you totally ignore the past. And be it in history, be it in the history of our constitution, be it
0: in our ancient history, if you ignore the past, then you do so at your peril. Are you saying that the sun is really the cause of uh, climate and climate change and our relationship to the sun? is really what is driving climate? Well, very much so. And that's been known only for a couple of hundred years.
1: Uh, We have an orbit of the Earth which has a hundred thousand year cycle where we go from circular to elliptical. And so we get closer and further to the sun and that then drives how warm we are. Uh, We have uh, an axial change and that axial change puts us further or closer to the sun, every 40,000 years or so. And every 20,000 years or so, we wobble a bit like a top, putting us closer or further to the sun. So it is the sun that's driving the amount of radiation coming onto the planet. And that gets changed by various other things. Uh, Other things such as being in the wrong address in the galaxy, where we get bombarded by cosmic radiation, where we have a buildup of clouds, and that prevents light and heat coming onto the planet. It is the sun that drives climate, it is the sun that drives the ocean currents, it's the sun that drives the air currents, it's a transfer of heat from one part of the planet to the other and this heat comes from the sun. There is a little bit of heat that comes from deep in the oceans and that's when we're pulling apart the ocean floor, leaking out a lot of lava and leaking out a lot of carbon dioxide. But the sun is the driver of climate and we've only known that for hundreds of
0: years. So you're not impressed <clears throat> by these arguments that uh, we will soon become a renewable superpower, that we'll have green hydrogen, and we'll be all driving around in electric cars. I noticed, for example, that Rolls-Royce, and I'm not considering buying a Rolls-Royce, but they're g- announcing that they're going to drop petrol-driven motor cars, and they're going to only have electric motor cars. You're not, uh, you're not impressed by those arguments.
1: Well, not, not impressed at all. If, if we become the renewable superpower of the world in Australia, we are bankrupt. We cannot uh, plough, seed, um, weed, harvest and process food, which then gets transported to the cities, without diesel. We cannot, in a large country like Australia, travel from one part to the other without fossil fuels. We have since... The last 120 years or so, about 83% of all energy we use on planet Earth comes from fossil fuels. That hasn't changed. (coughs) Excuse me, I've got a tickle somewhere down there. It must be all this carbon dioxide (laughs) that I'm exhaling.
0: Liz Liz Truss, when she came to power, instead of... uh, doing the inevitable, that is, recognizing that the aim of heading towards zero emissions was a serious error and it was pushing up energy prices. And instead of that, she decided that she would borrow billions of pounds to keep the price of energy down, which you can only do for a certain period of time. She resigned, and uh, they're talking about bringing back Boris Johnson. But Boris Johnson seemed to have also caught the uh, this fantasy of believing in climate change and having to get rid of carbon dioxide. What What is wrong with the politicians of today when they're so obsessed with uh, this man-made climate change theory, which I think you've demonstrated is uh, not acceptable as a theory, unproven and uh, shown to be completely wrong?
1: I do a lot of my geological work in black Africa and in the Andes. People in those parts of the world are concerned about tomorrow's food. They're concerned about having enough electricity that night so their kids can do their homework and get an education and uh, end up with a better life than them. The whole business of global warming, net zero and renewable energy is a Western phenomenon. And it's because we are so wealthy. We can afford to fritter away money. We can afford to have pet theories and ideas We've created whole new business enterprises of people skinning the consumer alive with their spearing of the countryside with uh, wind turbines, with solar panels. We also have in the West um, no leaders. There is no uh, significant country that has a strong leader. We are totally leaderless and that allows these policies to go unquestioned. I would also argue that the... Parliaments of Western countries are dominated by lawyers. They're not dominated by practical people like engineers and scientists who immediately can see the stupidity of this and engineers can solve problems, uh, lawyers create them. So we we have a a (laughs) huge disconnect now between what is practical and what is good for the consumer and the ideology that politicians want to follow and that's in many ways supporting their friends who are making a fortune out of the ruinables industry. So we're in a very, very backward swing of the pendulum in the West, and it will have to change. Otherwise, that is the end of Western civilization.
0: One of the problems in Western countries, and I think Australia is probably one of the worst, is that the pre selection of politicians is controlled very much by cabals of power breakers, and they Try to ensure that their candidates win a pre-selection, which is not decided on merit, it's decided on the loyalty of the particular candidate to a particular power broker. And I think this was broken wonderfully in the United States in 2016, when Donald Trump sailed through. He was obviously not the candidate of the establishment. The establishment Republicans didn't want him, but when he got in, he did things like, for example, to pull out of the Paris Agreement and try to make America energy independent, but they soon got rid of him. This seems to be the situation we're in at the moment, but at some stage, surely the politicians will be caught out, as they have been in Europe, when energy prices go so through the roof that people are reduced, I gather, in Germany to going out to the forest and cutting down trees to burn them in their fireplaces rather than relying on expensive fuel. At some stage, the politicians and the enormous propaganda industry that supports them on this question will be caught out, won't they? Well, yes, the only good politician
1: is a frightened politician. They will be caught out. But for a politician to say, folks, I got this seriously wrong, and I've had new advice and I'm changing my position. That won't happen. So what will happen is we'll have to get bad and then worse and even worse until those politicians are kicked out. These politicians are not going to say I made a mistake. This, this is um, absolutely lethal for a politician to admit, admit to a mistake. And this whole business of pre-selection involves having favours. I do a favour for you. You do a favour for me. And you carry that baggage all through your political career where you are part of a clique uh, and they all owe each other favours. Now, Donald Trump wasn't part of that. He didn't owe any political favours to anyone and he could do what was best for the nation. He didn't do what was best for his faction. And that is the sort of person we need to come into politics now. Someone who is not tied to any faction, someone who's got some knowledge and experience, and someone who doesn't owe any political favour to anyone. The electorate ultimately will decide, I think we've got to suffer an increasing amount of pain before the electorate will say, well, what went wrong? And this is one of the reasons I write books to give people the background and the information. to say, look, we've known about this for 25 or 30 years. Politicians ignored it. We now have to have politicians who are pragmatic, who've got some life experience, and maybe um, have a lot of skin in the game uh, and maybe are not looking to uh, stay in a comfortable job but are looking at serving their nation.
0: Yes, very few of the politicians in Australia have had a, what they say is a real job. That is, they've essentially come from the university... And while they're at the university, they've been working in politicians' offices. They will work in them for a number of years. And during that time in the politicians' office, they're doing deals, as you rightly said, they're doing deals to get a safe seat. And that's how they get into Parliament. So we don't have a Parliament, the sort of Parliament we used to have, where there were people who had different (laughs) and real experiences of life. We have a Parliament mainly of career politicians who started out in their uh, university years with a decision that they would become a politician and they achieve that position. So that is why I think we have few politicians who would tell the truth about this situation. The unfortunate well, thing- Well, I would agree. Is, and the unfortunate would thing too is that the, <coughs> in many ways, the mainstream media has become the propaganda arm of those who want to push this, this theory, this illegitimate theory of man-made global warming. And that is very sad particularly when we find that there are some parts of the social media who will take action against those who try to speak the truth.
1: Well, that's quite right. Um, There was a time once when people our age would have said, well, we have uh, got ourselves into a comfortable position, Um, we have a calling to serve our people, and we would enter politics. It would not be a career because... Neither of us are going to live for another 40 years. Uh, It would not be a career. It would be serving our people. And on one issue, you and I might agree. On another issue, we would disagree. And that, to me, was very healthy politics. And these were the people that actually wrote the Constitution for our country. The mainstream media is on life support. The mainstream media are basically stenographers for the Greens. The mainstream media are obsessed with trivia and a few political issues, such as climate change. This is why networks like ADH-TV have taken off. This is why people are saying, no, I'm not going to watch mainstream media. I'm not going to read or listen to mainstream media. That's it. They're finished. And I think uh, there is a, a great role for something like this network, a great role for magazines like The Spectator to actually have the issues out there in public and discussed. We are living in very rapid, changeable times. People get all the information off a mobile phone but they don't have knowledge and so we are in a situation where people who committed a large amount of information to memory and have life experience are are competing against a mobile phone and that's just a, a very hard battle to fight and ultimately it will be won because the hip pocket is going to hurt so much people are going to vote and say well wait a minute Uh, We once had good times. What's happened?
0: One of the very interesting things in your book, Green Murder, is your warnings against hydrogen, both in relation to cost and in relation to the dangers of hydrogen. Well, hydrogen's an interesting
1: element. It's the lightest element in the periodic table. And it was hydrogen that got me interested in science. I used to make hydrogen make little hydrogen explosions. Uh, Neighbours didn't like it when I shattered their (laughs) windows. But that really got me interested in science, bangs and smells and colours. And hydrogen, we have known uh, since the 1830s, um, when people tried to use it as a fuel, we have known it's very expensive and it's very hard to contain. We tried it again in the 1920s as a fuel. It failed and some people would know of the Hindenburg. And... This is where um, hydrogen, which wasn't compressed, uh, showed how explosive it was. Now we're going into a a situation where we want to use subsidised electricity to electrocute water in a dry country and from nine litres of water produce one kilogram of hydrogen, compress that hydrogen, 700 times atmospheric pressure, which requires a huge amount of energy, cool it to minus 253, and then transported in steel canisters. Now hydrogen is such a small atom, it will work its way th- out through steel, and while it's doing it, it'll make the steel brittle. So what we're doing is having the same people who've reaped the subsidies from wind and solar, saying, oh, I can see a huge market for subsidised hydrogen. Let's not worry about the dangers, let's not worry about the costs, because they're paid by subsidies. Hydrogen is not mined, it has to be produced. and The energy production is not producing energy for the consumer. It's actually skinning the consumer alive with high prices and with subsidies from governments. So hydrogen will go the way it's gone in the past. And unless we subsidise it really richly, hydrogen is just going to disappear.
0: One of the fascinating things, one of the horrifying things, is the the dangers in relation to electric cars. I was... uh, told this by my brother-in-law who's German and his, his brother still in Germany was saying that uh, uh, yet another electric car caught fire the other night in a garage and caused great consternation in that part of Germany. We don't see many reports of this.
1: It happens a lot.
0: Electric cars
1: uh, catch a light very frequently. This is why if you own a car parking station you will not get insurance if an electric car is parked there. Uh, It is well known. Electric cars catch a light, and when they catch a light, that is a chemical fire. You cannot put it out with water. You cannot smother it. And uh, during that fire, you release hydrofluoric acid. Hydrofluoric acid is a liquid or vapour. Hydrofluoric acid dissolves rocks. It dissolves glass. It's highly toxic. And once you have a lithium battery fire, You basically have to wait till it goes out. There is no way you can put that fire out with conventional firefighting means. Now, firefighters then are exposed to all sorts of toxins, including bisphenol A, from the burning of plastics, the burning of epoxies, the burning of paints, and the hydrofluoric acid uh, from the fire. Hydrofluoric acid is a very, very small molecule. It's very hard to filter out of a breathing system. These fires are lethal. Uh, it is It is no surprise that uh, people are greatly concerned about these. We've had lithium batteries explode and catch a light. We had one in Geelong in southern Victoria. That took uh, a week or so to put out. We have cars often catch a light uh, and it will continue to happen, especially when people are trying to charge a car and the battery's not taking the charge very well. So lithium batteries are very dangerous. now. We know that, and we've known that for a long while, because if you travel on an aeroplane, you're not allowed to put lithium batteries into the hold. You're only allowed small lithium batteries in your laptop or your phone, and that would create a small fire, which is manageable. But if you have a big lithium battery in the hold of an aeroplane, that's it. You'll bring the plane down. So we've known how dangerous these are for such a long time. The airline industry has taken measures to stop it. I don't know why the automobile industry is going down this path, because it's dangerous.
0: What should uh, people do who live in apartment buildings, who are on the governing councils of those apartment buildings, strata title and so on, what should they be doing in relation to giving permission for people to bring electric cars into the building? They usually have a, a common car space area. Should uh, electric cars be allowed in, uh, into apartment buildings?
1: Well, the normal thing is these apartment buildings are wired such that you couldn't charge one or two electric cars. If you did, you wouldn't have the power to cook a meal, to heat, cool, or um, have your lights on or run computers uh, or have a television. So they're wired not to have electric cars. Now, some of these are being rewired. And I think a body corporate in these organisations has got to say, no, too dangerous. Um, Park it out in the street. Uh, Nothing to do with us, but you're not putting an electric car underneath my residence.
0: There was a case in Manly recently, I believe, where somebody, was and it was a wet day, ran a cord from his house out into the street to recharge his car. But the thing is, if uh, governments are pushing up the price of electricity and they're making it unreliable and scarcer, how on earth can they also at the same time be telling people they should be buying electric cars and even giving subsidies to buy electric cars?
1: Well, you've described California. California is giving subsidies to buy electric cars. Only the wealthy can buy them. And once you've bought your electric car, then California says, oh, hang on a tick, the power system can't handle you charging up your electric car. Don't charge it up. That's the situation you're going to be caught in. I do a lot of very long driving, Um, fairly recently I drove from Sydney to Broken Hill, that is 1,200 kilometres, one fuel stop at Dubbo and did it in um, about 11 hours. If I did that in an electric vehicle, it would have taken me probably five days. Um, We had a case recently of a chap who drove his electric Harley-Davidson from Perth to Sydney. It took him 21 days. On one fuel stop, he wouldn't have made it unless he'd had a tailwind and he only had three kilometres of fuel left. Now, 21 days. He'd done the trip before in a Kawasaki um, petrol motorcycle in four days, but he did it in an electric Harley in 21 days. Now, what's the point of driving a Harley-Davidson unless you've got the the noise from the Harley, that noise that they patented? There was a chap in 1909 on a push bike that pedalled from Perth to Sydney. He did that in 31 days. There were no sealed roads then. He had dozens of punctures. So he was only 50% slower than someone who went in an electric motorcycle. Uh, We had a chap the other day who ran it in 46 days, raised $1.5 for charity. A wonderful chap. He ran more than 100 kilometres every day for 46 days. He spent two days in hospital in Kimber on the way through. But you can run it in twice the time it takes to drive across the continent of Australia in an electric Harley Davidson. So these vehicles are totally and absolutely useless in a large country like Australia. They do have a use, and I recall the days in London when the milkman had an electric vehicle, and that's because he didn't have to start and stop it all the time, it stopped the noise, it stopped the wear on the engine, and these were lead-acid batteries. And at night time he'd be delivering milk, in the daytime the vehicle would be charged. Mm. Uh, So, there is a use for electric vehicles, but it's not for a continent like Australia where we travel very large distances and we rely on having a vehicle that's reliable when the nearest town might be 300 kilometres away.
0: I think that the Australian politicians, the political establishment is being taken in by the Chinese Communist Party. The Communist Party of China is no friend of Australia, and they have since demonstrated that and demonstrated it fully. Now, what are the Chinese communists doing? What do they, what do they think? What's their reaction, do you think, when they see what the West is doing, countries like Australia are doing when we're running down? Uh, our systems, we're running down our mining, and we're running down our electricity supply.
1: Oh, their response is just laughter. How can they be so stupid? Um, We are weakening our defence systems, we're weakening our economy, we're exposing ourselves to all sorts of additional risks. All they're doing is laughing and saying, this presents a wonderful economic opportunity for us. If these people are going to be so stupid, let us overpower them economically and perhaps militarily.
0: Do the politicians know that they're really working in the interests of the the Chinese Communist Party? I don't think they care. Their
1: only, their only worry is, can I get re-elected in the next election? They don't care what they do to the country. As long as they have their salary, their staff, their trips, their perks, and sit on a few committees where they can earn extra money, they don't care. And... A large number of these politicians are eminently unemployable and they have kicked a goal. It couldn't be better to earn more than $200,000 in a job where you can do whatever you want to do and at the end of the line you just have to face an election. And these elections are driven by parties, often not on an electorate basis. And so uh, these people... Whether they are aware of what they're doing or not, they don't care.
0: All they care about is getting re-elected. We've also had the case, have we not? And We won't name them because we don't want a, a writ. We've had the case of a number of politicians leaving politics, going on to their gold-plated superannuation, but also taking sinecures paid for by what are effectively organs of the Chinese Communist Party, all, all corporations founded in China, are controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. That's a requirement of the law and they must obey what they're told to do. And we've had politicians <clears throat> being very well paid as they're also receiving very generous superannuation and uh, they've been doing, they've been working effectively for the Chinese Communist Party.
1: But we won't name them. Well, that's the case and we, we see these people all the time giving their opinions. One of the better examples would be the former Chancellor of Germany, who, when uh, he had negotiated uh, the pipeline from Russia into Germany, he then retired as Chancellor and became Chairman of Gazprom. If that's not a conflict of interest,
0: I don't know what is. I think you've pointed to something really serious there, which the West should be very concerned about. This is as you rightly say, the biggest scientific fraud in history. And I think you've explained that. You explain that very well in your book. It's a, it's a very large book, but it's eminently understandable. And there's an excellent introduction, an excellent conclusion. And I must tell you that my book, my copy is, is underlined in pencil all over the place with notes on the side because it is, it is such a teaching document, and I think it should be widely known across Australia. So in conclusion, Ian Plymer, you are a wonderful source, resource for the Australian people because you're telling the truth on something which is destroying our country. So please continue in this wonderful work that you're doing.